All right, so we are picking up um, at the bottom of lesson three. We're talking about the supernatural word of God. And part of that um, is kind of where we left off last time, talking about um, that passage on the screen from Isaiah chapter 28. The Lord will rise up to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task his alien task, that when Isaiah says that, he's talking specifically about God doing the, um, the work of preaching the law. And, um, and that God it doesn't, <laughs> it's almost a strange and alien thing to him um, before he gets to doing his proper work, which is the proclamation of the gospel and, um, and the forgiving of, forgiving of sin. Um, and so how about... What do we what do we mean when we describe God's efficacious work as or the efficacious work of God's word as supernatural? I guess that's one of those details that we don't think about very often. Still, yeah, the la last section of um, the. Discussion about scripture being efficacious. If you're looking in your book, it'd be page 50. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Excellent. That's a good start. That the living the, the word of God is living and active. Um, that it's not it's not a dead word on the page for us, you know, to to just discuss and have our own opinions about. Uh, the way that we might have opinions about um, the weather or, or sports teams or whatever the case may be, um, like the Ohio State. <laughs> um, but that it is a, a living and active word. Um, and then together with that, that this, this supernatural word of God has a supernatural effect. We've got more copies here. Yeah, my, my seating class, like at seminary, usually like once you get your seat on the first day of class, that's where you sit for all semester um, or all year because we just stayed in the same room by the time we get to your, your second year. And so I, yeah, that was the only day I got early to class to sit in the back corner. <laughs> All right. So the talking about the, at the bottom of page 50, he says, um, such a supernatural efficacy of the Bible, a lot of big words today, um, is necessary because of the perversity of the fallen human race. Um, in other words, when he, when he says, you know, he's talking about the perversity of the fallen human race and that the Bible must be supernaturally efficacious, <laughs> um, that, it, that it doesn't operate according to the, the way that any other text in the world operates, that God has given it and has promised his supernatural power for overcoming 
sinful human objections. Um, and that, you know, together with that, whether you're talking about the spiritual resurrection of a person from unbelief to being a believer, or whether you're talking about um, somebody who by faith confesses or even stakes their life on what this scripture says, that, um, you know, that, that is means is, that Jesus says, this is my body. And even though I can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, um, it looks exactly the same before, you know, 10 seconds before the words of institution and 10 seconds after, after distribution. Um, at, by the same time, the supernatural word of God gives the power to believe um, that Christ's body and blood is there exactly as he promised. That was kind of my, it, it's only a slight, a slight wibble with um, our current issue of Ford in Christ where, um, you know, there's a question about the Lord's Supper. Most of the issue is talking about the Lord's Supper. And, um, and one, of the, uh, one of the authors talked about the Lord's Supper as, as a test of faith. Um, maybe it, it, you know, the Lord's Supper reveals the depth of our sin, but it doesn't test our faith. The Lord's Supper strengthens our faith. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not a test of our faith. It's maybe a test of my, my, uh, my sinful hum humanity where I come up against it. Um, but then the Christian, you know, if you're thinking like Romans chapter seven, um, what I don't want to do this, I keep on doing. Um, you're thinking Romans chapter seven, that the, the Christian is the real you. And the Christian says, you know, bows the head and says, it must be true because Jesus promised that it's true, no matter my opinion on the matter. Um, bottom of page one and onto page two of our reading guide um, has a couple of agree or disagree questions. And we'll read through, I guess, all five of these. Agree or disagree? Give you a minute. I'll read through all of them first. First one, unless I'm driven to my knees in, and in tears, I cannot appreciate the gospel. And the second one, I don't have to feel forgiven to be forgiven. About third, people who are members of the churches that teach false doctrine will not be saved. Uh, top of the next side, a sermon is good when it either brings me to tears or makes me rejoice, or both. That's funny. And uh, a good hymn is a hymn that people like to sing. I mean, I can, I can make people cry in a sermon. You just keep preaching for like 50 minutes. It's not that hard. <laughs> All right, how about that first one? What do you think? Unless uh, talking about, this is under the, sub, the subheading, the efficacious word of God. Um, unless I am driven to my knees and in tears, I cannot appreciate the gospel. Yes or no, and why? The why is the more important part, I guess. Well, nobody's crying right now. So do you still appreciate the gospel? So. Definitely. What else? Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is um, 
this is very common. Um, and it, it's very common outside of Lutheranism. And it's, it, I think it's become a little bit more common even among us to, to in some, on some level, equate, you know, God's work in like the gospel or in the sacraments or um, to equate God's work with my emotional response. And, and what this really is, unless I'm driven my knees and in tears, I cannot appreciate the gospel. Um, it's, I think it's also subtly denying that the Bible works in a supernatural way. Um, because any motivational speaker will, will show you in 10 easy steps or you know, three or fewer, just watch a TED talk on it, I guess. Um, and you could figure out how to emotionally manipulate a crowd into elation or, or sorrow or anything in between. Um, but if God's word is a truly supernatural thing, then there must be some element of God's word working outside of our perception, um, rather than saying the only way that I know it works is if there's this particular emotional response. How about, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, because the law kind of don't back up. Yeah, and 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 I think equating the two, that if God's word is going to work, then I need to have this emotional response of some way. Um, it it discards the word of God as supernatural, and it it tries to put human emotion in the wrong place. Like it's not a bad thing to. To feel you know beaten down when Pastor Hagen is talking about that point of the law, and it's not a bad thing to you know be jumping for joy or or um, or elated um, when when we're talking about the joy of the gospel. I mean, um, you think of you know, uh, like a funeral, for instance, like a Christian funeral. You might be there's so many emotions going on, um, but then singing those hymns. Whatever, whatever hymns might be chosen, um, the reason that they are so particularly moving is because you, you can't miss the specific application of those words to my life. Um, you know, Jerusalem the Golden, and, and you're singing that, that hymn, and then you're thinking of your, or, yeah, that's the first one that comes, comes to mind. You're singing that hymn, and you're thinking of your loved one who is in heaven now because of all the work that Jesus accomplished. Um, it's okay to, to cry or, you know, to have some sort of emotion about that. That's not a bad thing. Um, or you, the flip side, you think of like Ash Wednesday or some of the other Lenten hymns, um, like a, you know, confessional hymn, like in hopelessness and near despair, I come to you, O Savior. Like, oh, that's a fantastic opening hymn. Like, Lord, I come to you like dirt. <laughs> that's how I feel. And that's how, that's what I am. Only dust and ashes. How about the next one? I don't have to feel forgiven to be forgiven. This one probably relates. Yeah, that one's pretty straightforward. Um, agree that, um, that God's word works regardless of our opinion about it. 
Uh, third one, people who are members of churches that teach false doctrine will not be saved. And there's, yeah, Joe. Yeah. As long as they still have Jesus Christ as their Savior, then they can be defended. False doctrine is a problem. They need to be spread. Particularly the fact that the resurrection is still the same. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's where um, the parable from Matthew chapter 13. Of the farmer who goes out to sow his seed and it uh, it falls in different areas um, can help to illustrate that that the seed may be sown and then um, along comes the bird to to eat up the seed um, where you've got a proclamation of the gospel and that's what God uses to create and sustain faith. Um, the the question the concerning thing is is um, is that the, that gospel is then denied in the very next sentence. And I think um, in a lot of in churches, that's that's more common. Um, in literature, um, it's a little bit easier to to see where they're coming from, or to say, you know, this book isn't isn't working for me. Um, excuse me. But I think there's there's definitely the the warning there. Um, there's the the tainted food analogy. Um, you know, like how much <laughs> how much how much poison or how much uh, poor poor food can you handle? Yeah. Yeah, please. the next side this is similar to um, the part about gospel a sermon is a good sermon when it either brings me to tears or makes me rejoice or both I haven't heard very many good sermons then <laughs> so what does make a good sermon I've been doing this for 11 years now. I'd like to know. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> know it when I see it. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Definitely. I, I think that that part is very important. Um, obviously, and, and it does get to the question of what is the purpose of the sermon, um, which, you know, different pastors and even within our own church body and across, you know, different church bodies will have different purposes. Um, where I would say, you know, that the purpose of the sermon is a specific proclamation of law and gospel. And then kind of a secondary purpose is for teaching. And so my sermons average out at about 24 minutes. Um, others that, I, that I'm aware of, you know, like Pastor Bader, who is often featured on our podcast, um, his usually go 28 minutes, sometimes 31. Um, and Pastor Zarling, who is pastor at a, a large um, double, dual site church in Racine, Wisconsin, um, he's pretty consistently at 16 minutes. Um, and maybe there is some fluff that Pastor Hagen could trim out <laughs> um, to get down to 16. Um, but I think that that question of what is the, the purpose of the sermon is, you know, kind of drives what you want to do. And finally, a good hymn is a hymn that people like to sing. Hopefully they do. <laughs> Hopefully people like to sing good hymns. Um, there, there are a lot of hymns that that people often request for like a funeral or something like that, that, you know, has a sentimental meaning, or, you know, if that's the hymn that you remember from your grandmother's funeral when you were a little child, and, um, and now here you are 60 or 70 years later, and it still has a, has a near and dear spot in your heart. That's not a bad thing. Um, that, that hymn that isn't saying anything good or bad about the hymn. Um, but it is, you know, what is a good hymn? Well, we don't want to just have a, a rote recitation. We want something that's also beautiful. Um, so I guess, there, but there are a few hymns that, that I generally, you know, if somebody asks me, you know, Pastor, we haven't sung this one for a while. Can we sing this one? I'll say sure. <laughs> um, but there, there are a lot of like favorite hymns, I guess, that people might have that aren't, don't come up often in my, you know, kind of rotation of what hymns we sing. All that to say, if you if there's a favorite that you've been missing for a while, then uh, let me know. Um, so the final part about God's supernatural work, um, such as the camel going through the eye of a needle, um, that this is impossible with, with man, but with God, all things are possible. Okay. Sufficient. Top of page two, what do we mean that the scriptures are sufficient? Right. Yeah, that's, that's it. That they've got uh, everything that we need. Um, and so it, it doesn't bother us um, if people are like, well, first and second Corinthians, how many letters did Paul write to the Corinthians? Did he write two, three, four, or five of them? Um, or people say, well, what about, you know, this, this other hidden gospel or say in another, you know, five years from now, somebody discovers a letter to the Colossians or to the, the church in um, Lystra uh, that was signed by the Apostle Paul, apparently. So it's like, okay, well, we don't need it. It's kind of maybe a nice to have, um, but it's not, it's not necessary because what we do have is, is sufficient. Um, it's all we need. 
And, and together with that, we don't need any other further revelations um, or other scriptures. We don't need any other external authorities, such as a pope who's going to try to tell you how to read your Bible um, or that you don't need to read your Bible. Um, you don't need you know, the, the celebrity megachurch pastor who is popular now, uh, whoever it is. <laughs> um, you don't even, in, in a sense, you don't even need your pastor to explain it to you although it's certainly helpful, um, or at least I hope it is. <laughs> um, but that scripture is sufficient. And that's kind of on your page uh, from 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Missed an E there. Um, and so, you know, you, you hear that, and then you think about, um, well, what about Genesis 12, verse 6? where it writes that the Canaanite was still in the land, um, that God appears, to Moses, God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and makes these beautiful, tremendous promises. And then the, verse 6, the Canaanite was living in the land. There, we say that all scripture is useful and all scripture is sufficient. Um, and so 2 Timothy 3 here, if all scripture is useful, then even those things that don't seem directly applicable that they're still useful for the context and for the history of God's God's saving work. Um, and so our, our, our stance on how much of scripture is useful um, doesn't depend on our perceived usefulness of it, <laughs> but it, it depends on God's promise that it is useful. As we're still talking about sufficient also. Yeah, that was, that was one of the papers we had at pastor's conference this week was, um, was the history of, of our synod statement on the inspiration of scripture. And I thought, you know, we're going through our synod's doctrinal statements. It's, it's fascinating. Um, or if you need a good nap, you could probably find that too. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the 20th century church history for the most part. And the interesting thing was that there's an entire paragraph that Pastor Fry had in his paper of different ways that people tried to say they believe in the Bible, but we don't have to listen to that part. <laughs> that, yeah, it was an entire paragraph, and, uh, and, and it concluded with the, the, the best, one of the best quotes I've ever heard from a pastor's paper, where he's talking, um, you know, maybe somebody says that isn't actually part of the Word of God, or it's, it's not useful for teaching, so therefore we don't need it, um, and, and just all different ways of saying this. And it, he concludes it by saying, you know what, all of these ways that people try to dismiss the word of God are the same thing. They're all just different hairs growing out of the same mole of unbelief. <laughs> that is very vivid. That one, that one made the, uh, the minutes. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we have that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and again, at the end of the book of Revelation, um, that if anyone takes anything out of this book, then the blessings will be taken from him. If anyone adds to this book, the condemnations will be added to him. Um, and so it's like, you know, Joseph Smith comes along or Mohammed or whoever the next cult leader is. Um, okay. I don't need that. God's very clear. Um, how about this one? Evaluate. What do you think? I would believe what the Bible says about God and about me if I could see a miracle in my life. 
And thinking about miracle there, I guess, um, probably defining that as something beyond natural living. As you could say, I wake up every day. That's a miracle. My SNO keeps my heart pumping. That's a miracle. Um, yeah. I don't, don't wait for things that aren't promised by God. Definitely. Right? Don't wait for things that aren't promised by God because his word is sufficient. What else? Yeah. Tempting God and testing God. It um yeah, you read that, it's like oh, back up. <laughs> um where it and, and basically what it what it's saying is I see what God says in his Bible and about the promises he's made about his word. Um, but I want God to prove it to me because that's not enough. Yeah. If you go back into the United States, children does what I got done. So all kinds of miracles can go and they do. Uh huh. So, I mean, they have a guy right there. Even if you Jesus from America, right? Yeah. So, what good could the miracle be? I mean, it might be something that would affect you for 10 minutes after that. Yeah, totally. So you've got, um, you know, the, the generation that saw the plagues and walked through the, the Red Sea is the same group of people who barely a month later is um, making a golden calf. Um, or the, the greatest, like the high point miracle in the center of the book of John, um, John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And everybody's like, wow, this is great. And the Pharisees are like, wow, we have to kill Lazarus now, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like unbelief is going to unbelief, right? Um, how do you respond to what do, somebody who would say, what does your church teach about? That's the, uh, the quickest, quickest one that I had was a Sunday or two ago, we had some, a visitor, and, uh, or I was talking with a friend, sorry, uh, talking with a friend online. And, um, and we haven't met in person. We just met through a mutual acquaintance. And, um, and he's living in New York. And he's like, okay, so does your church ordain women? I'm like, no. And, and instantly, like that question, um, we could talk about scriptural reasons why or why not. Um, but that, at the very least, helped to narrow down what kind of Lutheran we were. Um, but how do you respond to somebody who says, what does your church teach about? And fill in the blank with whatever hot button or cold button topic you would prefer. What does your church teach about chocolate chip cookies? What does your church teach about coffee? Did you know Mormons don't drink coffee? Yeah, I don't get it. Coffee, tea, or cola. <laughs> yeah, coffee, tea, cola, or any form of alcohol. Yes. Depending on, because yeah. it's a, a hot Among drink. other things, I'm not allowed to Yeah. What does your church teach about coffee? Um, it's not necessary, but not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that one um, can be individual enough that, you know, the question isn't so much, at some point, the question isn't what do we teach? The question is, what does the Bible say? Um, and so I can tell you what we teach and we, and I can ask, you know, find out why you're asking that particular question. But the bottom line is what does the Bible say? And is that in line with, um, 
is are we in line with what the Bible says? How about that next one? This one's maybe a little bit more challenging. How do you respond to somebody who says, I just feel that God is whoever you think he is and that he would never send anyone to hell? <clears throat> or if you shorten that up, the accusation, a loving God would never send a person to hell. I've heard that one. <laughs> How do you respond? All right, God is just. God is both just and loving. And I think together, together with that, um, to follow that through all the way to its logical conclusion, that if God is both just and loving, that his justice and his love do not depend on a person, whether he sends a person to hell or not. That God could have been, remained a God who is perfectly, perfect love and perfectly loving and condemned all people to hell for all eternity. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. At some point, you have to see that that God is greater and higher than our than our human brains. Um, he's very logical, orderly, and rational, but he is above our human capacity for logic and order and reason. Yeah, so I think that's where I usually usually end up, that God could be could have remained a God of complete and perfect love and still sent all people to hell because he already gave them one path to heaven. You know, don't eat from the tree. But in love that is beyond anything that you or I would ever know, um, God said, well, I'll send my son to carry your sin so that you can be forgiven. Um, how about this one? This one's also fairly common. How do you respond to someone who had said, I have a new job offer and I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do to show me his will? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting, waiting for some sign or waiting for some feeling or some some whisper. Um, first of all, you don't know if that feeling is God speaking to you, which He's never promised to do. Or if it was just last night's chili that isn't sitting very well. <laughs> I try to try to have something about that, like every every sermon that I have on prayer, which we had this past Sunday, so it'll be a while again. Is that that prayer isn't a two way conversation? Um, that prayer is us praying to God, and then God speaking to us is in His Word. Um, but but this is the thing that that the further the more detached people get from the Word of God. Um, the more wrapped up they get in their own feelings or emotions. Um, and this is what we call mysticism. Um, mysticism is this idea that God speaks to me through something other than his word. 
Like God speaks to me in my feelings. God speaks to me in the rainbow outside. I just saw a robin there. And so that was God speaking to me to say that my loved one is okay. (sighs) I try not to roll my eyes. How do you respond? My first response when somebody says this is I bite my tongue and I don't roll my eyes because that would not advance the conversation. I mean, with all, with all compassion towards somebody who is in this, because somebody can be a very sincere, very devoted Christian and, and say things like this. Um, and, you know, far be it from me to, to be the one who totally slams down another, another Christian, um, but to gently find some way of saying, well, you know, there's a little bit more certainty where God has promised to speak. How about that last one? Is it wrong to seek the Lord's direction for the day-to-day questions of our lives? Is it wrong to seek his will on matters of vocation, marriage, and the like? Grace and Bounds, page 58, is where I brought that up. Still shake my head when I finally clicked that that GA abbreviation is Grace and Bounds. It's right here. <laughs> So that, that question is um, directly from the first full paragraph, I guess, about halfway down on page 58. There's a little bit more in the paragraphs follow. I think of that bottom paragraph on page 58. Uh, we bring every concern to him in the confidence that he will hear us as he promised. We give thanks for the choices that he has given us in our everyday lives. We pray for his blessing, and then we pray for God's blessing. We weigh our options, consider what Scripture says, and then we move on. Um, yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. You pray for guidance, and you you act responsibly. Um, and that that prayer. You know, part of the way that God answers prayer is through human action. Um, I'm not just going to say, you know, like uh, a friend of ours had their had their son. Um, he was having headaches and light sensitivity and just wanted to lay in his bed instead of you know, go out and play. And so I ended up at the ER and got an MRI. Um, and it, just, I mean, he's had surgery now. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Um, but you, you pray for God for, for help that this that this child would have you know this this brain tumor addressed, um, but then a prayer in faith also takes stock and takes awareness of what are the, the blessings that God has given to deal with this. Um, it, it wouldn't be a prayer of faith to say, "All right, um, I've prayed about this. The doctors told us that our son has a brain tumor, and so we're going to go home and pray some more." <laughs> well, no, God's giving you the means to to address this. And so we ask for God's blessing on, uh, on the surgery and for the recovery and all that. Um, so is it wrong to seek his will? No. <laughs> um, usually, you know, bigger questions, um, at least eventually, you, they kind of sort themselves out. You make a decision and you're like, this is the best decision I had at the time, best thing I could do. Um, and maybe in hindsight, you'd say, you know, this looked like the worst thing that could have happened and it turned out to be one of the best. And, and I guess that's, that's the other part. Like Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
um, that that's a promise like going forward. It's not a promise for our rear view, rear view mirror. Well, well, it is a promise for our rear view mirror as well, but it's also a promise <laughs> going forward that, uh, that God wants to use that to encourage us to, um, to act going forward, not just sit around and wait. Finally, God's word is oh, a little bit about uh, the scriptures being sufficient. Um, from the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, uh, Article 15, Line 17, we can affirm nothing about the will of God without the word of God. And from the Formula of Concord, that's FC, the Solid Declaration is the longer version, um, Article 11, uh, Line 52, that God has maintained silence and has hidden a great deal reserving it for his wisdom and knowledge alone. We may not inquire into this or follow our own thoughts in this matter. We may not form conclusions or brood about this, but must cling to the revealed word. Finally, the last part, scriptures are clear. What do we mean and why does this matter? Well, yeah, yeah they're, they're understandable. Um, they don't need to be deciphered and decoded. Um, and this, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in that sense, it's kind of like what St. Augustine had said, that the scriptures are um, shallow enough that a child can bathe in them and deep enough that an elephant could drown in them. Um, that you've got the same gospel message, whether you're talking to, you know, Joel Leland and Warwick, or whether you're talking to a group of people in church um, who have been Christians for their whole lives, it's the exact same gospel message. But there's always, you know, new applications, um, and but there's a there's a clarity to that word, where it's I I, I would put like clarity and orderliness kind of together. Like that was one of the reasons why um, Martin Luther had no problem. He actually encouraged. The, uh, the Quran being translated into the German language. Because um, he was like, if people start reading this, they'll, and then they, they read their Bible, they'll definitely see a difference. Where the Quran is set in order from like, either longest chapter to shortest chapter, or maybe it's shortest chapter to longest chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and you just read through it, and it's the most, it's the most bizarre thing. Like, what's going on here? I almost understood this chapter, then we changed to something else entirely. So could you imagine, like, you get to, um, you're starting your Bible with some, let's say, for the sake of argument, longest to shortest, you're starting the Bible with Psalm 119. And, um, and then all of the, and then eventually, you know, about, what is it, about 300 chapters in, you get to the Gospel of Luke. Um, and then another 200 chapters, then maybe you get to the Gospel of Matthew. And then you conclude with Psalm 116. It's like two verses long. <laughs> um, and so I think clear, um, also talking about orderly um, and, and arranged in, in a way that, that makes sense. Um, and that, that clarity of, of God in, in providing his word, which in no way negates the supernatural power of God's word. Um, that both are true, that God's word is very clear to the reader, as well as has a supernatural power attached to it by virtue of his promise. 
um, that, that both can be true. And so you can have somebody at the University of Ottawa, um, school of like 90,000 kids, um, somebody there lectures on the Gospel of John as part of their ancient literature every year. Um, not a Christian at all. And then you'll have every year a couple of students that wander across the street to St. Paul in Ottawa and say, um, you know, I was reading this and it really struck me that Jesus is saying some pretty intense things here. Is What do I have to know about this guy? Second uh, Timothy 3, Aaron Rodgers. All right, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17. Uh, we had this before. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, and when we're talking about the, the application of scripture there, such as teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, um, that, that it's almost understood already there that scripture has to be clear in order to be applied. If I said... Um, you know, you can live a Christian life as long as you wear a purple sock on your left foot, a red sock on your green foot, and you walk backwards when the moon is in retrograde um, every single day for at least 17 and a half minutes. Um, that's not clear, and it's impossible to do. Um, but if, if I say, well, if you want to live a Christian life, then look at God's law with joy that this doesn't condemn you anymore, but God simply says this is what you can do to lead a God-pleasing life. Vastly different. How about this next one? Agree or disagree? Everything in the Bible is easy to understand. <laughs> Kathy's chuckling. Oh, man. Like the month of August and into September, um, in our, our readings from the Gospel of Luke, like Luke, I don't know, 12 to 18, it's a wonder I'm not bald. Like already, it runs my family, so I know that. But uh, just tearing your hair out, like how is Jesus saying this, and why is he saying it like this, and what does this actually mean, and um, and what what should I be saying um, with these words? That it's it's clear um, doesn't necessarily mean easy, uh, easy to apply. Um, anything else about that? Everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Yeah. Yeah, reading is one thing, understanding is different. Um, and that the, the basic, the prerequisite for understanding is, uh, is faith. But that, that is something that God promises to, to give through the reading of that same word. <laughs> yeah. And that other principle for interpretation that scripture will interpret scripture. 
Um, there's, there's all sorts of cross-references back and forth throughout Scripture. And, um, and, and, and even when you're talking you know, more broadly than just the Bible, um, that even in classical you know, English literature from like the time of Shakespeare to you know, the 20th century, um, there are all sorts of references to, to Scripture. We're even understanding a lot about the literature that, that we've produced has references to Scripture. <laughs> Something else, I guess. Um, but that the Bible is, it, it will explain itself and even if there are parts that are difficult to understand, um, that we base our doctrine on the parts that are clear. And then we use the clear passages to interpret the parts that are less clear. Um, so like in 1 Corinthians when, um, 15, when Paul talks about, what about those who are baptized for the dead? You know, he's dealing with these Corinthians who are like, you know, there's no such thing as a resurrection. And Paul, um, he, he lists out all the reasons why the resurrection is trustworthy. And then he tacks on this other practice that, um, that the Corinthians were doing. And he points to that as proof that they had been confessing the resurrection of the dead. And he points to that as proof that they had at, at least at one time believed the resurrection of the dead. Um, and he just refers to it with like one line, one, one sentence. If the dead are not raised, then what about those who are baptized for the dead? And I kid you not, there are over 28 different interpretations for what Paul is saying with that verse. And, and, it, and, and it let, because people would be so focused on the difficult thing, the things that are difficult to understand, it's led to a variety of practices. Um, I think that's where um, Mormonism got their practice of you know, following their genealogy so that you can be baptized for your ancestor. Um, so, you know, applause and hooray, because just a few years ago, Martin Luther was baptized Mormon, even though he's been long dead and in heaven. Um, and, I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, and so what, we, what do we do with that? Well, we just look at it and say, all right, they, they knew what was going on. We don't have all the details, um, but you don't set up a baptismal practice based on one obscure verse. Um, where you, and this was, this was where it kind of came to into practice in Germany, that when a church got a new bell, that the bell would be baptized before they put it up in the, in the, the belfry. Um, and that there were, there were rumors that, you know, if a church didn't have their bell baptized, then some demon would come along and throw it down. <laughs> Well, if you were the, uh, the contractor responsible for building that building and putting a big heavy bell up there, um, that's an easy one. It's not my fault. You guys didn't baptize it well enough. Yeah. So everything, it's not that everything in the Bible is easy to understand, but it is clear and understandable, um, even if there needs to be you know, some extra teaching or saying, well, we'll come back around to this again after you know, we've looked at some of the clearer portions of scripture. But it's like Peter, though, he had trouble yeah. understanding what Paul was saying. I love that. He's hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah, 2 Peter 3, um, where, where, uh, where Peter says, um, consider our, our brother Paul, who writes, writes the same way in all of his letters, and he, in some of his letters, he writes things that are difficult to understand and then which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And when he's saying that, I mean, it's, 
it's obviously very comforting. Like, whew, you know, Peter wasn't a, wasn't a slouch. He had, he had three years of, of you know, training with Jesus. Um, but if he says that some of what Paul says is difficult to understand, then it's okay to say, um, you know, this is maybe above me right now. <laughs> um, the other part that's interesting about that is from an early, you know, the writing of Second Peter, probably the, the early 60s. Um, from a very early date, Paul, we see that Paul's writings were recognized as scriptural and inspired um, on par with the rest of scripture, and that distorting them was on, also a sin on par with distorting the rest of scripture as well. How about the next one? Agree or disagree? Coming to faith in the true God is solely the work of the Holy Spirit using the words of God. But human beings have the power to resist the working of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, there's a lot there. What do you think? Very disagree and why? That's a good question. <laughs> When we talk about, um, in this one, yeah, when we talk about will and free will, I'll start, John. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and, and so what we have is this paradox that will never fully resolve itself to our human brains, that, that I am, I have no ability or power to um, in any way cooperate or be an active participant in my conversion. Um, at, but, uh, but that God's word overwhelms me through this miraculous gift of faith, that God through his word um, creates this faith. The other side of this illogical you know, equation that is beyond our human reason is that if I reject God's word, then it is completely my fault and my blood is on my own head. And the, the human brain is like, okay, but if God, if God were really serious, then why, why, why are some people able to reject and others are converted? And that, we just say, well, we've got two truths. <laughs> we're going to let them both stand. That God is serious, he wants all people to be saved, he promises to work through his word, and that um, if a person rejects God's word and rejects this faith, then that's their own fault. Um, but that, you know, the, the topic of, of free will uh, often comes up, and, and the question is, you know, how much free will or when, when do I have free will? Um, that free will in spiritual matters um, is non-existent since the fall into sin. So um, Adam and Eve, before the fall into sin, they were able to not sin. Adam and Eve, after the fall, and all of their descendants after the fall, um, not able to not sin. So in spiritual matters. Um, after, after a Christian, after a person is brought to faith, then you are, again, um, able to not sin. That the Christian who has the spiritual uh, word of God working on their lives 
and the new life of, of faith, the Christian is able to reject sin for the right reasons. Um, and that finally, when you and I are brought to heaven, um, we will be not able to sin. And so, you know, once you're, once you're in heaven, then you are confirmed in righteousness, and there's no chance of you getting thrown out. Uh, finally, evaluate. I can't understand how a baby can have faith. So, as a result, infant baptism is not necessary. I can't understand how a baby can have faith. So, therefore, infant baptism is not necessary. What do you think? All right. That, that's a good example that, um, uh, of a baby who did have faith. It, it, you know, from all appearances, it does seem like a, you know, a miraculous occurrence, um, but you can't say that babies cannot have faith. Yeah, that, that you're restricting the power of God to, to what I can perceive. Yeah. Which takes us back to um, back to that part about the supernatural work, the supernatural nature of the, the word of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that the first part is, um, is a logical deduction based on my human reason. Um, the second part is this conclusion that is also, it's dealing with spiritual matter, but it's also based on my human reason. Um, and, and, and there's a couple of ways you can, you know, slice that cat, skin a cat, <laughs> whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. Sorry if you like cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you could talk about talk about the role of reason and faith. You could talk about the promises of the Word of God and baptism. Um, you could talk about what is faith. That faith is. Um, we'll get to this eventually when we get to. Um, I think the part that's called soteriology um, just means how does God save people? The study of how God saves people. That faith is also a supernatural gift that um, that includes with it. You know, some knowledge and trust. Um, that's the, the essence of faith is trust. And then the last part is assent, which says that I, you know, I believe this and I want to follow along with this. Um, but that when God says in his word that he creates faith, then those things are there, even if we can't, you know, test that infant's understanding and knowledge. Um, I think that's the, that, that is the biggest barrier. Like, could does God create faith through the hearing of the word in this little infant who is in church? Um, sure. <laughs> yes. I don't see why not. Um, but we can't be certain because we can't have a conversation with a three-month-old baby. We can be certain because he has attached his promise to holy baptism, that he creates faith in holy baptism. And therefore, and, and he commands us to baptize. And, and therefore, we've got the certainty and in his promise, as well as the joy in following his will, that, that this child will be baptized. Any other questions?
That's, that's an interesting one, especially when you think about um, you can interact with a child. Yeah. All we know is that scripture says to baptize. Yep. It doesn't have a bullet list saying ta da, ta da, ta da, ta da. It says baptize. Leave it at that. And it's, it just blows me. Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll talk about baptism a little bit more in depth when we get to um, sacraments. But that is going to wrap us up for tonight. Um, I printed out chapter four. Those. And then next week I'll, or do you have to read? Then I'll, then I'll print out the rest of them for next week, and then it'll be all stapled together, and you can either take the staple out or punch it or whatever you want to do. And that's a, maybe an easier way to keep it together. Thank you very much. Why don't we close with prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you um, for the beautiful promises that you have attached to your word, that you have given us your word uh, to work in a supernatural way that goes beyond our human reason and perception. We thank you for your promise that your word is sufficient, that we don't need to be looking anywhere else. And finally, that your word is clear, um, that you have given a word that we can understand and discuss and share in our own words. We ask that you continue to build up your people, your church, both here and around the world, to the glory of your name. Amen.